This is Eklas. And this is Mecca. You're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on race, gender, and Muslims in America. Mecca, tell the people where they can find us. You can find us wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Acast. You can also find us online at IdentityPoliticsPod.com, on Twitter at IdentityPolPod, and on Facebook.com slash IdentityPolitics. And remember, if you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, Mecca. Hey, Eklas. Remember when people used to say, hey, girl, hey? I was actually thinking about that the other day. No one says, hey, girl, hey anymore. We should bring that back for sure. Yeah. Is that offensive now? I don't think so. Why would it be? I don't know. Like, should we be saying, hey, woman, hey? (laughs) (laughs) We can try that. (laughs) Hey, woman, hey. (laughs) It doesn't have quite the same ring to it. I have to shout out Marianne Johnson from Wellesley College, who actually responded to our fact check from our last episode about movies and whether the Pentagon has to approve them over like a specific budget number. And she gave us a very detailed history of the relationship between the United States government and Hollywood and how, depending on how it is represented, the U.S. government will actually give benefits to movies that are trying to use like military equipment or things like that. Um, So that was a really fascinating like walk down history and unfortunately semi-validated a conspiracy theory that a class had. So who knows what others. I don't know if it's semi-validated or fully validated. (laughs) Okay. But I think it's a dangerous precedent that the ideas that you have have some grounding in truth. (laughs) No, it's already beyond dangerous. First of all, (laughs) I'm already there. Oh my! There's, it's not like I'm opening the door. I am in the door on the couch with a blanket, like wrapped in conspiracy theories. Thank you for that, (laughs) Marianne. We will never hear the end of this. So that was just affirmation. Thank you. And if there are other conspiracy theories that I've mentioned that y'all have uh, proof of, please send to identitypoliticspodcast at gmail.com. I welcome all affirmations. Thank you. So, Mick, I'm really excited because we have Leah Bernan, who is a blogger, fashionista. Wait, do people still say fashionista? Is that like you sound, yeah, you 90s sound a little window? old. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I take that back. <laughs> she's a blogger. She's a writer. She's a storyteller. And she has an amazing, amazing, amazing Instagram presence. I cannot stop looking at her photos. And so we have her on the show today. And I just... I felt like we should talk a little bit about representation. To what extent do you think representation matters? Hashtag representation matters. You know, that's something that we see online all the time. And every time we see, you know, a Muslim police officer or a black, like a dark skinned cover girl or, um, you know, someone who's elected to public office that doesn't look like a white male. And I'm just wondering, just in your opinion, do you think that representation in itself is always a good thing oh that's that's yeah I wasn't ready for that second (laughs) about it always being a good thing I was like yes representation matters I think it's hard and this is going to be a super basic example that's not necessarily related to Muslims but I think about shows like flavor of love (laughs) and love and hip-hop 
(laughs) and Real Housewives, right? Where, you know, so many, I think a lot of people of color watch these shows, right? And then you'll have some people that are just really happy to see black people on TV. Like I'm that way where I don't watch any of those shows. Well, low key, I watched Labor of Love (laughs) and enjoyed it. But I know that I'll watch things on TV because I'm like, I just really need to see a black person. I really need to see a person Mm -hmm. of color. And I know the show isn't the greatest, but I want to watch and support this. But then on the other hand, you'll have shows. And I mean, I can't speak too much to love and hip hop because I haven't watched a lot of it. But where you're not pleased with the way in which people are being Mm -hmm. represented, So yes, you have people of color on TV, but how are they operating on these shows? Is it more of because of what these representations might be saying about them? Like, like it it is a poor reflection of me or because I also get the like, this is glorifying bad behavior argument a lot. So is it more about this is not the type of thing that should be uplifted, period? Or is it this is not the type of thing that should be uplifted about our people because we want to look good? (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's that, right? Part It's part respectability yeah. politics. When you want to see a black person, when you want to see a Muslim, right? You want to see the whatever you believe to be the best representation of that. And so when you don't see that, it's just like, ah, oh, that's not what Muslims are like. But then you have to be like, well, actually, that is representing a type of Muslim. And so... Can we be upset with that? I think the issue for me comes when who's behind telling that story, right? So if you have something, if you have like black people or Muslims being represented and behind all of that is like five Mm -hmm. white guys. And you can always (laughs) tell. With the camera. (laughs) Yeah. Then that's problematic. Like I can't be okay with that because then I don't, think that story is authentic it's like when I would watch girlfriends and then I saw that like Kelsey Grammer had executive <laughs> producer credits and I was like Kelsey yeah he, Grammer, he was the executive producer is- for all of those black shows <laughs> yes but you know I love them all but at the same time there is Kelsey Grammer executive producing and it was a show created by Mara mm. Brockakill so right that who we love on this show by yes. the way <laughs> So, right, that that grants the legitimacy of you actually have a black woman within that age range who is telling that story. So do I always think it's a good thing? No, I don't always think it's a good thing. I think that we can't always just be happy with the fact that there is a black face or a Muslim face. I think we also have to be very critical about the way that image is being shaped, that story is being shaped. In Hamilton, they say, like, who tells your story? Yes, yes, yes. And I think For that's sure. the key. What? So what do you think? <sighs> what do I think? I think about this issue of representation a lot. Um, I definitely do not think it is always a good thing. I think it is a means to an end. Like, I do think diversity is useful. Bringing different types of perspectives together, like showcasing different ways to be human is useful. Showing people themselves in different settings, it expands the imagination of the places that they see themselves as like 
rightfully able to exist in in the world. So I think to that extent, like it is useful, but it is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. And I think it gets really dangerous when people just salivate over representation itself. Um, Because for me, you know, we went to women's college and we didn't agree with all other women. And so it's been fascinating to me to get out into the real world, so to speak, and to hear, you know, women must uncritically support all other women. And when I see like a woman who is in a position of power in which she is using it to like abuse marginalized communities and people of color that I'm supposed to celebrate that she is able to be evil because she is a woman, like that is not a type of feminism that I subscribe to. And I think very similarly in terms of representation of any group that I belong to, like you can do you and I can do me. And I think part of it is this idea that's false, that there's a scarcity of like uh, a scarcity of attention. There's a scarcity of platforms. There's a scarcity of like, of, of, of tools in which like different groups can represent themselves when in fact, like that is not the case. Like it's not like we can only have one Muslim podcast, you know, one, one, one podcast hosted by Muslims. So we got to make sure that one podcast hosted by Muslims includes everything. And I'm like, no, that's not true. Like the perspective that we have is going to be different than the perspectives that other people have. And that's okay. And someone else doing like the same type of work, but representing themselves is not necessarily a reflection on me. And so I feel like, yeah, I I just, I'm not a huge fan of representation itself as a goal because oftentimes when people are like, yeah, like we're, we're represented, like you said, it's steeped in respectability politics and this idea that there's like a perfect way to be a member of that group. And it's also incomplete. Like it's not fully human. It's not actually steeped in history. It's not steeped in like the complexity of like what these communities are actually grappling with. And so I want to hear more stories, like not less. This is so random what I'm getting ready to say, but I remember when Rihanna or Rihanna came out with Fenty Beauty and everyone was like, yes, this is what actual, like, this is a weird way to use representation. But I mean, it's the kind of the same thing, right? With just thinking about makeup products and how all of these other companies thought that they were representing the different shades of women. And Rihanna was like, no, this is actually (laughs) like, (laughs) I'm actually creating products that do represent women. But it's like, it's so obvious when you're like a part of the core curriculum versus an elective, you know, like, (laughs) and it's like Rihanna made like women of color and women of all shades, like, a part of the core curriculum, whereas like all of these other companies, their main demographic is white women, but they also might have a super dark shade, a super white shade, yep. and like one yes. or two like in between. And so like, it's like you said yes. earlier, like who is actually in control and who are you actually like catering to? So yeah, this idea of like representation, I think kind of goes both ways. Let's talk about the representation of Muslim women. Whenever you see like Muslim women breaking ground, defying stereotypes, changing the conversation, shaping the narrative. Nine times out of 10, what is she doing at class? What is, what is her profession? <laughs> what is her, yes. like a hijabi it blogger? Is a blogger. <laughs> it is usually a quote unquote hijabi <laughs> blogger. Maybe it's focused on fashion. Yeah. Maybe it's focused on beauty. But for the most part, it is focused specifically on what I call like the performance of femininity and that like Muslim women can be beautiful too. <laughs> so why do you think there's yeah. so much of a focus on Muslim representation, specifically in the beauty industry? Like, is this is this positive or negative? Like, wh- what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's like a, what do you really call it? Like a net neutral 
right? I think that is the representation of women in this country still, right? Like the beauty industry makes tons of money. The fashion industry makes tons of money. And so I think now the conversation is, yeah, why shouldn't Muslim women also be a part of that? Muslim women are also consumers. And so I think it just makes sense economically (laughs) (laughs) to put Muslim women in the category as other women are put in this country and not that it's a bad thing or a good thing. I mean, I was very happy to walk into Target last week and see tons (laughs) of long jackets, (laughs) like very like Muslim type clothing that made my life a lot easier. And so I'm, yeah, modest fashion, right? Like I'm not mad at it. it. I'm not mad at it. It definitely makes it um, easier. I think one of the things that I feel about it though, is it's hard because I think mainly about younger women. So girls, (laughs) literally, I mean, young girls. (laughs) And I've noticed that young girls like wear makeup a lot. And so when I was in school, I didn't wear makeup and I was like far from knowing anything about fashion. And now I see that for younger girls, that is a thing. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure like, you know, inshallah, if I have a daughter, if at like 13, 14, I like want her to know her like makeup palette and like wake up 30 an hour, 30 minutes an hour before class to like put on makeup and do all of this. I I think that kind of rubs me the wrong way that the way to look pretty is to wear makeup. And so now that we're entering a space where Muslim women are a face of that, that makes me feel a little uneasy. Yeah. And, and I know there's pushback to that, but that's kind of a ton of sense. I I think I have a lot of similar thoughts. I also just think a lot about the concept of beauty. Like it's really trendy right now. There's been a lot of parenting pieces that are that say, don't, don't call your daughters pretty. Don't call your daughters beautiful. Call them smart, call them hardworking, call them, uh, you know, all of these other adjectives that essentially speak to their positive characteristics of their character so that they don't become overly obsessed with their physical appearance. And while I understand the intent behind that, I also know as a young girl who at times was insecure, at times was depressed, at times really didn't think that I was beautiful. Like having my mom and my sisters and these women who just looked like queens, like just totally regal, uh, turning to me, you know, holding my face and telling me that I too was beautiful was really important. And to show me how to be beautiful, to show me that this is how you take care of your hair, this is how you take care of your skin, Basically, I feel like pretty white women are tired of being told that they're pretty, but the rest of us, no one thinks we're pretty. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, that, it's like the rest of us are really still accurate. catching up in yeah. other people recognizing like the beauty that lives within us. And unfortunately, like, yeah, that external validation is important. And I do watch like turban tutorials. Like, I do watch brow tutorials. Like, those things are useful to me because I do enjoy the act of being able to dress up or dress down my physical appearance. I do think, like you were saying, there has to be a balance. Like, to me, I'm an adult. I like the way I look with and without makeup. And I also understand its utility. It's not something that I feel like I need to constantly be wearing. It's not 
a mask that I wear. If anything, it's more like armor. Like I can put it on and feel more confident when I go out and like face the things that I do. But it's not like my base layer of clothing that like I must wear. So I kind of feel like all of the, like you said, you know, women in general and like YouTubers and things like that, they are primarily focused on like fashion and beauty products. And it's a huge industry. But I also think that that's okay. Like no one really questions the superficial interests of men and like all of the sports podcasts that exists and how they know all these like random facts about people that they'll never meet. But like if I have an interest in some celebrity blogger, then all of a sudden that's superficial. Um, So I think it's actually like good to have light representations of us um, in which we're able to just talk about like how we want to look and and the things that we want and that that doesn't have to be like I think frivolous interests are useful and help access like different creative parts of of the brain but the danger is in tying it to the part of our conversation earlier is when that that representation stops there and when we confuse that representation with like something that it's not. But I am I am happy that I feel like there are a lot of people with those platforms that are starting to expand beyond just like, look at how cute I am. And I think I think our guest today is like a, a really great example of that. You mentioned the word frivolous earlier. And as we continue to have this conversation, I wanted to push back on that a little bit. And I'm thinking, especially when we talk about fashion, that years ago, it was hard to be able to find modest fashion and mainstream unless you had someone, you know, design or making your clothes. And so I think it's a huge moment to have a prevalence of hijabi fashion bloggers that are making modest fashion more accessible within the mainstream. And then especially when we think about younger girls, as we were mentioning earlier, that they can have someone to look up to who's wearing hijab, who's dressing modestly. And I just wanted to say that I think that's a huge, huge moment. And it's really a huge blessing to have such a prevalence of this and for it to be trendy, right? So increasing the amount of like young girls and then like even me, right, of being able to walk confidently out of your house um, wearing hijab and dressing modestly, I think it's big. So I just don't, I didn't want to discount that. Yeah. And I, I think also, you know, I, I'm struck by when we were at Columbia, there was someone in the audience who basically said, what about girls who just don't care about that stuff? You know, like I, like, am I only cool now if my eyebrows are on fleek and my highlighter can be seen from outer space and you know i'm wearing the latest like modest fashion trends like what if i just want to wear my black abaya <laughs> and my black scarf yeah. and no makeup and go to class like am i seen as backwards am i seen as oppressed am i seen as like super basic it was a great question and i don't think we have an answer to that yet like i think we've made tremendous strides in like these beautiful muslim women um having a platform and being seen as such and being seen as acceptable and people just like understanding like the beauty of Muslim women, um, like they're not inherently put off by seeing someone who is showing less of their body, but you know, they're still completely made up. They're still, you know, sort of tailoring to this like very specific idea of what it means to be beautiful. And so I do think like you were saying, like if you're starting to wear makeup when you're nine years old, what does that really mean for the majority of girls who are just like trying to play soccer and like go to school and like play video games, like, you know, just like completely not concerned about those things. Because I don't know that the world has gotten better 
for people who are just like Muslim and not necessarily interested in like perfectly curating uh, an image of uh, being a beautiful Muslim. I'm really excited to talk to Leah about this very topic because this is something that she covers a lot. And, you know, just to be really spiritual about it, thinking about the inward and the outward. So how are we physically manifesting what's inside? And I know that sounds really yes, the inner dimension to be like, it's about what's inside that matters. But in reality, I think that's what we're talking about, right? How do you represent yourself? And what message are you trying to communicate? And yeah, Leah talks a lot about that. So I'm excited to get into it. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Thank you. Leah for coming on the show. We were so excited to meet you at the Muslim Protagonist Conference in February. And you're on a panel where you're speaking about being a fashion blogger, among the many other things that you do, including writing and blogging. And so we wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit about that. So thanks for being here. Yes, welcome. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that Mecca and I did right after we met you is what everyone does is stalks your Instagram <laughs> immediately. <laughs> like as you were speaking, <laughs> we were like, what is this makeup? How does she do her hijab like that? <laughs> but then once we kept reading your posts, we realized that like, wait a minute, this isn't just like your typical hijabi fashion blogger, like Instagram account. You're content on there really let you get a deep look into what was happening in your life and kind of the struggles that you've gone through. And so can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of blogging, writing, fashion, and how you've been able to navigate that? I'll give you the short version because it'll be like a whole book. If I give you the full version, I had always been interested in stories. Um, I was homeschooled. So, you know, I didn't have like that, I guess, normal upbringing where I'm around like a bunch of um, stimulation um, So or other kids my age. So I basically flocked to the library to, you know, kind of escape the life I was living, which is like, you know, young black girl from Detroit, you know, fat, Muslim, not much money, single mother, things of that nature. So I used to like live in the library, like all the librarians knew my name. And I was um, particularly drawn to like sci-fi. And what I noticed was that there were no uh, black um, heroines, uh, no black characters, that black people just didn't exist in the future. Mm -hmm. um, although I, you know, I, I didn't have that aha moment until I was a little bit older, um, but still didn't fully understand it. Um, so actually, I've been writing since writing stories since I was six years old. A little bit later on, I was really obsessed with models. And everyone was like, oh, you're so photogenic. And I'd be like, you're lying because like, you know, no one looks like me who's beautiful. I used to always, always get that. And I just didn't understand what people saw in me. But I was very obsessed with modeling, like America's Next Top Model and the Style Network. Like I'd obsessively um, watch thin white models, you know, own the runway and something that I would never be. 
So I went through a lot of like um, self-hatred. I went through a lot of um, identity issues because I was a fat black Muslim girl growing up during a time where we weren't represented properly and still aren't actually. So the eating disorders happened, stuff like that. And at one point I was just like, what would happen if I just, just randomly uh, started a blog? Like what would happen? So I started Instagram, granny photos, ridiculous outfit. And I'm just like, you know, Android photos, just ridiculous. <laughs> it sounds like my current Instagram. <laughs> I don't know how to take this. <laughs> so, so like I started that and people were like, oh my God, I've never seen a fat black hijabi do any of this before. Give me more. It's amazing because I honestly have never seen anything like what you do. I love how you started off talking about science fiction and its essence is sort of like imagining what could be, right? Like it's it's sort of abandoning the constraints of like our current reality. And so imagining black people, imagining people that look like us, like in a different type of, of context, like there's a lot of, of power in that. And one thing that I'm, I'm really struck by a lot of your work is that there is an undercurrent of some very real experiences, um, some moments of lived darkness, but it seems like you serve as this place for joy and light and actually like processing that for other people. So how how were you able to even go about transforming moments of darkness and moments of struggle and being able to process that internally yourself, but then also turn that around and use it to help other people? I didn't start out like this. I feel like my followers kind of molded me into who I am, which I'm very, very grateful for. I used to write like short stories of sci-fi and no one ever wanted to read it. And I was like so offended by it. So I'm like, this is good stuff. So I tried to pump that, push that, and no one wanted to read it. And I'm just like, ew. <laughs> and my um, one of my teachers was like, you know, you have a really interesting story. You should um, write nonfiction. And I'm just like, eh, I don't want to talk about my life because nobody cares about that. You know, I don't want to be that woe is me person. I don't want to be that person who's online, you know, just bearing it all and just people attack me, attack me because I'm um, sharing something that's deep and dark and ridiculous. And um, I don't want people to think I'm mentally ill. Like all these stigmas I didn't want people to think of me as so for a long time I, I didn't write or share anything because I'm just like I'm not strong enough to take the the backlash um not only am I fat you know fat women are supposed to be quiet and not say anything I'm also a black woman and then I'm also Muslim and there's like a lot of you know stereotypes you know around Muslim women like oh they should you know be quiet they should be this they should be that and my stories don't fit into that. You know, my trauma doesn't fit into that nice little circle that, you know, other Muslim bloggers or hijabi bloggers and even just like normal, you know, non-Muslim bloggers do. Um, they create this whole false, fake social media pump story about how everything is amazing all the time. So um, when I started um, sharing stuff, it was about body image because I had a lot of body image issues. And so when I shared my first body image post, people were like, oh my goodness. Like, I think about this every day. Like, you are not alone. I, I started getting like flooded with messages from women from India and Asia and Africa, you know, all across the United States. Like, oh my God, this is me. This is how I feel about my body. This is what I want to say, but can't. These are the opportunities that I'm not getting because I'm fat or because I'm black or because I'm Muslim. I can't say or do this. And just all these stories and just I, I, be, I basically became a platform 
and create a community through my own stories for women and girls and people who, you know, of the queer community and just different people to kind of connect and see that, yeah, you can be an influencer. Yeah, you can be, you know, take bomb photos and have a beat face. But at the end of the day, I'm a real person. I remember during the panel, you were saying that you like never post an unedited photo on Instagram. And I immediately was like, I need to check my whole life. How do you maintain this authenticity and staying true to you, who you are, while also really intentionally and carefully like curating this idea of who you are on social media and through your blogging? When I first started blogging, you know, I got the, the pictures done and whatever, and, you know, they're edited or whatever, you know, the good angles, da da da. And, you know, people were really digging that. But like, as far as like posting like a bare face selfie or me just like not glammed up, you know, I'm just like people, you know, people were not going to like it. They weren't going to engage with it, you know. So I started to basically curate my page like every other blogger, every other, you know, influencer that's online. You know, I'm like, in order for me to, you know, build my brand, nobody wants to see a basic, you know, bare face. They want to see like, <laughs> glam and slick. They want to, you know, they, they, you gotta they, give they, the people what they want. <laughs> exactly. So I was just like, I'm, I'm not gonna post that because I'm trying to build a brand and I want, you know, people, you know, I want to curate this so that I can, you know, build my following. But at the same time, I started having uh, women who didn't wear makeup and who didn't, you know, wear the glitz and the glam and the vintage and, you know, all these things who were followers of mine who respected me and respected my story. And I'm just like, wait a minute. Did I just like, as, as I'm preaching body positivity, as I'm preaching being yourself, as I'm preaching all these things, I myself fell into that vortex of perfection, perfection, online so I had to check myself and was like, wait a minute, I'm looking through my feed and I'm just like, there are no pictures of me without makeup on. Like that, that, there's not <laughs> one photo without me having a beat face, the lashes, yeah. the eyebrows. And I'm just like, oh my God, I became that, that influencer. Oh my God. And so, so like, I'm easy. Just like, okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, no, no, no. We're going to, we're going to maintain all this uh, authenticity and we're going to post a bare face selfie. We're going to post an unflattery angle at the gym. I'm going to post my underarm jiggle cellulite. Like I did that one time. <laughs> on text. I'm going to post that because people need to see that all my angles are good. Like my whole life is not curated. I also think, you know, it's professionalism, right? Like, it's like we put on our clothes when we go to work and like so much of your work is online. And so for people to think that's you like all the time, like, I think it's really healthy to say, okay, that's me sometimes. <laughs> and then other times there's something else going on. But you get a lot of like really interesting people in your comments and your DMs. And apparently for those who did not see this, someone said like, oh, you're like smoking shisha. Like you should like take off your hijab or something. Like that, like you might as well just like not be Muslim. Like, what are you even doing? Which, like, totally logical, like to go there. But I started actually thinking about, you know, Klaus and I, we're not in influencers by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, hey, speak, to, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, excuse me. We are influencers <laughs> of a different kind. But something that we think about a lot is, is these def different communities that we represent, right? Like we're black, we're women, we're Muslim. And given that the communities that we come from can promote this idea that you have to be a certain thing in order to represent us, like there's a right way to be Muslim, there's a right way to be black, there's a right way to be a feminist. How do you stay true to yourself and face these haters and the pressures and demands of this kind of respectability politics? 
Yeah, so basically, um, the more you think about it, the more depressed you get about it. Um, I think sometimes we think really deep, too deeply into things where it starts to cloud our vision about it. And when it, be, when it comes to identity, that is identity and spirituality, it becomes a very personal thing, right? For too long, I was policed. I was told that I wasn't enough. I wasn't worthy to get or to be. And this is by my ex-husband, by Muslims in the community, by people who saw me as a threat or saw me as going to be somebody one day and they wanted to, like, you know, dull that light. So coming from that standpoint of someone who was constantly told that she's talking too much, too loud, too fat, too this, too that, you kind of get fed up and you're just like, I'm going to be me, whatever me that is, and I'm going to do it 100% unapologetically. I'm going to do it with pride and passion and art um, and expression. And I'm going to do it to help other people as well as I'm you know, becoming myself and still growing and learning. But um, I actually wrote a post yesterday and I told people I, I am not the poster child for Islam. And I wrote an article about this that kind of went like semi-viral like last year with the same title. I have to keep reminding people that because Muslims look and speak and express themselves in different ways. There's not one right way to be Muslim. And people somehow, including the media and in our communities, you have to look a certain way, you know, to be Muslim. Hence that, okay, take your hijab off because you're you're smoking shisha with your friend. Just take it off. And that sense of entitlement um, to another individual with, without knowing their intentions, without knowing their spirituality, their connection to their creator, it's ridiculous. And how I deal with it is basically by looking at the bigger picture and not bogging myself down with the details. I am a black, fat Muslim who is a feminist, who is divorced, and many other descriptors. And that is my identity and my identity alone. And I don't really care what these small pockets of haters or haram police have to say about it. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm tired of being someone that I'm not, and I'm tired of being told who to be and who what not to be. So it's kind of a look at the big picture. The majority of people love what I do, and they like it, and they support it. And the small amount that don't, you know, they can, I guess, cross the street without looking both ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also like the Haram police will always be there, no matter what you do. It's just always. Oh my God. <laughs> You could literally be praying in the mosque and they'll be like, sister, like, why are you praying right there? Like, <laughs> You need to go pray over here. Like, oh, my God, it's so ridiculous. But it, it alienates you, though. Like, I've been alienated from a certain Muslim communities and, and, and ones I grew up in, as well as ones that I just go to pray on Friday. You get the stares, you get, like, the sneers, you get just, like, you don't feel comfortable, you don't feel welcomed, and Islamically, you know, Islam is a beautiful religion. Like, being Muslim is beautiful beautiful and the way some people make it it's like wow and you really think you're spiritual treating someone like that yeah obviously when you book a lot of speaking engagements and some of them are specifically for muslim audience majority muslim audiences but then you have a lot of non-muslim audiences so when you enter these different spaces do you find yourself kind of like code switching between how you present yourself? What are the things that you speak to when you're in a Muslim audience versus a non-Muslim audience? Or are you more consistent along the lines of like speaking your truth? 
Yeah, so it's really funny because I've booked <laughs> Muslim, you know, events, you know, with, with Muslim student associations and things of I, that. I also love the way you're saying that right now. I feel like there's something underneath that. <laughs> it is. Um, that's I'm, 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 about to, I'm getting, I'm about, I'm about to get into that. Tell your truth, girls. It's a safe space. So my friend who also does like speaking engagements, she's like, you need to hit up all the MSAs and just like say like, you know, you're, you can speak, you know, da, da, da. So there was one in particular that, and she was so sweet. And she's like, yeah, I kind of want to get you to come to our, you know, it wasn't MSA, it was another Muslim organization. But she's like, I kind of want you to come and talk to the young girls. They really, like, they look up to you, you know, young Muslim girls. Come to the mosque or community mosque center or something like that. And then um, speak to them. I'm going to present it to the board and then, you know, see, you know, see what we can do. And she was like, I'm like, cool, let's do it. So then she inboxes me like two days later and was like, yeah, so the board doesn't necessarily think you're the best person to speak to the oh, kid. no. And I'm just like, why? She's like, well, they saw that you did a YouTube video on um, bikini waxing. <laughs> Lord. And, and I'm just like, so I get super like, I didn't go off on her because, like, she was just, like, the messenger. But I was just like, wow. So I'm a bad, like, Muslim role model. Not that I'm trying to be one anyway. But I'm a bad Muslim role model <laughs> to kids because I'm talking about bikini waxes. Like, I wasn't showing any before and after pics. It was just, <laughs> Yeah, like, you weren't, like, going into the waxing studio. No, like, here we go. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. Literally because you made them aware that you have a vagina, which... <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh my, so like, I'm like, this is what we're dealing with here. So what I do now, I do mind how I dress. So like, you'll see that. And I think I said that too, like when I was at uh, Columbia. Yeah, you did. I, I was just like, this is the most modest I ever dress. And <laughs> because like, I don't want them, I don't know, this is probably like, you know, very, because I should dress the way I want to dress. But like for Islamic organizations, the only thing that I will change up is the way I dress. Um, because I don't want any type of, I don't want them to discredit me in any way. Also, I want to be respectful because I know like most Muslims, for the most part that I went to the MSA, they do like, you know, dress modestly and I have a really big butt. And I don't want any issues. <laughs> so like, I will dress a little bit more modestly, but like as far as content goes, I pretty much keep it um, the same. Yeah. With less F-bombs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I speak my truth. I talk about things that make people uncomfortable, like racism and sexism and Islam and, feminism and Islam and things of that nature. Who did you like think that you were talking to when you first started like writing and speaking and blogging and who has sort of your message resonated with most in terms of the different groups that you interact with? Yeah. Um, so when I first started blogging, I didn't really have an audience per se. Like I didn't know like who they were. Um, I think sometimes as like social media people or podcast people or anyone online, we're like, Oh, we're just putting stuff you know, on this world, world wide web. And, you know, we can't see the faces of the people we impact and we don't know the scope of how many people we actually impact. Cause a lot of people will read your stuff or look at your photos and not say anything. So initially I didn't really know. I just knew that it was just for women and girls. And as I started growing my brand and growing my community, I, I thought I'd be like a niche where it'd be like, Oh, just like maybe plus size black Muslims or maybe just Muslim women. But what I found is that like my reach goes way beyond a niche. It's very relatable. Um, I have old white women, like, like legitimately. And I, and I talk really crazy on the internet about like 
like racism and stuff like that, white privilege. So I have like, oh, white women. I have like um, people of the LGBTQIA um, movement who are heavy supporting. Um, I have people, women who are atheists and agnostic, um, people from different countries, Muslims, of course. And yeah, I have a like, I don't have a set audience per se, which is good for me because that means I guess I'm a little bit commercial because like I can like relate to like all different types of audiences. So yeah, I just like anybody who's ever had any body issues or ever been through a divorce or been through mental illness or their families like screwed up, you know, like anyone who has a story, like that's who I, who I speak to. I also just want to shout out to old white women who like search the internet. <laughs> because We also have like old white women who are fans of ours and we're just like, what, how do you end up in this place? <laughs> No, listen, old white women are, like, super supportive. Like, I have this hoodie that my friend sent me. It's called Black, Fat, and Perfect. Yeah. Everywhere I've been in New York and I've been in Chicago, and every – it'd be, like, an old white woman who's like, yeah, that shirt is, like, amazing. <laughs> Can I get one? Like, I'm like, yeah, you can definitely wear fat, black, and perfect. <laughs> like, so they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty awesome. That is awesome. I want to kind of jump back to this point where you said you weren't really here to try to be a role model for anyone. And so I'm thinking about the work that you do. And sometimes it's, I think it can be hard to explain to specifically Muslim communities why this type of work is important, right? Like, why is it important to have people that look like us and media, right? So when Nike came out with their new like Nike sports hijab, people were like, whatever, Muslims are already doing this. Or when you see a Muslim woman who is now like in Revlon or CoverGirl, people are like, whatever, we shouldn't be focused on these mainstream like outlets, right? Like what are they doing for our Muslim communities? And so in the work that you do, why do you think it's meaningful, right, to have, like, YouTube channels, have this imagery out there? I feel like it's something that I see that's so obvious, but not a lot of people, you know, acknowledge the importance of this work. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to go back about the role model thing, I feel like being a role model carries so much weight. And, and like, in retrospect, I am because people are influenced by me all the time. Totally, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's like... I don't like commitment. So the reason why I run away from the word, <laughs> the reason why I want to run away from the word role model is it's so heavy to me. It's like, oh my God, it's so, it's so, it's so heavy to like be that for people, you know, even if I am that in my head, I'm just like, I'm not a role model, but it's like, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's a lot of heaviness that comes with that. But to go back to your point about um, representation and what I like, what I like to say is proper representation because they'll mm-hmm. represent Muslim women as being uh, straight size and white passing or straight size and Middle Eastern, the light skin Middle Eastern passing. And um, so, you know, it's well, representation is good, but proper is even better. It's very important. And, and I try to tell like, you know, blogging, podcasting, writing, creating anything art based or entrepreneurial shit, things of the things of that nature it's very difficult to get off the ground, right? Because everybody and mama is a social media. Everybody. <laughs> everybody and mama starting the podcast. Everybody and mama's a nurse. So I tell people all the time, yes, that's a fact, but that shouldn't let you stop you from trying to be a part of this community where we're all trying to like be seen, especially for like black Muslims and dark skinned women 
people who are like fat or have an alternative lifestyle, like it is very imperative that we start these YouTube channels, that we start these podcasts, blogs and write books and take photos because our voice and our narrative is not being heard. And if it is, it's being skewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really, I'm really getting tired of only seeing straight size, white looking hijabis. That is yeah. not all that Muslims look like. And I will, I will, I don't even care if I like stop blogging. I will always fight for that fact that that's not how all Muslims look. And that's not every single Muslim. Um, and it's really upsetting how the media will take one component of something and boost that where everyone else's stories are just like crushed or hidden away. Like that really upsets me. Yeah. No, I mean, it is super upsetting. And, and that's a good transition because I do want to ask you to talk a little bit about, um, you, you spoke about this at Columbia, but about the the Body Project video that you did, which I love. And I've probably watched maybe 20 or 30 times. No one's counting. <laughs> um, I may have been like dan- from doing my own little dance moves in my living room. <laughs> um, but uh, can you talk about like that project and just recognizing that, you know, this space and if we're defining this space as, you know, this representation of like Muslims, just period, Muslim women and like what people see as like a beautiful Muslim woman and you deciding to kind of take that into your own hands and really open up the conversation in a different way. Like, can you talk about that specific project? And also, why do you think people are so resistant to expanding their imagination about like what a Muslim woman like should be like where where does this resistance do you think coming from from seeing someone like you celebrating themselves and dancing in the streets? <laughs> yeah, so that video was um, <laughs> just I have these ideas um, for things and a lot of them I can't <laughs> a lot of them I can't do because of resources. But your girl can find some resources if she tries. So I had this idea. There's a lot of dance videos going around that that summer. And they had gone viral and there's different people, different people dancing. And I was just like on Facebook, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make a dance video and just like put it on Facebook. And people were just like, that would be super dope. And then um, one of my friends, they're like cinematographers. And so they were like, we'll, we'll do it. I'm just like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so it was just like no agenda, just like super, <laughs> like, I'm just like, I'm going to beat my face. I'm going to find a beat. My cousin made a beat for me. And I'm just like, I'm going to dance in the streets of Detroit. And then that's what I'm going to do. And so they're like, well, do you like, are you going to choreograph it? I'm just like, no. Why would I? Why would I? I'm not like a trained dancer. They're like, okay, okay, okay. We're here with you. Let's do it. So I told them at the end of it, because they're, they're like Catholic. And I said, you know, just know that this video is going to get lots and lots of hate, which it did. And um, you're going to be probably attacked because I am not, I'm fat, I'm black, and most importantly, I'm Muslim. And we are not, like, we, like, that's something that's super cliche to do. So she's like, let's do it. Who cares? I'm like, great, let's do it. So the agenda for that video, and especially, like, my little audio part where I'm just, like, talking about loving yourself and identity and talking about do I make you uncomfortable? Because a lot of people get uncomfortable when they see um, these certain intersectionalities and we'll focus on being a Muslim, um, the Muslim inter- intersectionality, they're just like, oh my God, like Muslim women are not dancing. They're not supposed to be wearing makeup. They're not supposed <laughs> to be making music videos on the streets of Detroit. Like, it, it was just like I kind of wanted to break all those barriers. I wanted to break all that, that congestion up of what 
a Muslim woman is supposed to do, air quotations. And I kind of wanted to, like, make – it was freeing, and I wanted to make a conversation. I wanted a conversation to be had. I also wanted to free some women who are – who feel like they're shackled by – Islam, because Islam is not that type of thing. And I'm, you know, I just want to show people that you can be Muslim AF. Like, you don't have to be oppressed. Like, you don't have to oppress yourself or oppress others. This is not, this is a beautiful religion and you don't have to do that. So that's, you know, why I did it. And it got lots of love. It went like semi viral. And um, I got like lots of interviews from it. And of course, I got the, the haters who were mad that I was fat and dancing or mad that I was Muslim and dancing. I got told I wasn't Muslim at all. Take the hijab off. One guy said that he wanted like my back to be broken or something. Oh my god! I got what well, I had to turn off the notifications on my YouTube because they were getting really crazy. You know, people who are privileged and the systems that are in place, like the media and the beauty companies and the fashion and style companies. How mm-hmm. much money would they lose if people really love themselves? Like, 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 legitimately, the the diet industry, the plastic surgeon. How much money would these people lose if people were like, you know what? I don't need to get a nose job. I don't need my butt done. I don't need that. Like, I can just, like, be myself and be great, you know, and be happy. Like, how much money would they lose? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the privileged don't want the oppressed to rise. And, and that's just, that's just like, the basic and fine line of, like, why they don't want people to be okay with their bodies or okay with themselves. Or they don't want me to represent, you know, national or international beauty because they want to keep making money off people with self-hatred. When you bring in this idea of how much money companies would lose, when you're choosing which companies to partner with, do you choose companies based on if they align with your values or not? With, And I mean values in terms of just like ethical, Islamic, like how do you partner with companies who may or may not be doing things that actually harm people, right? Right. So that gets really, really tricky because on the flip side, as an, as an artist, you know, we want to get our work seen. And as an artist, you need to use platforms to get out there, right? You need to use platforms to build your brand. People are weird. They want to see you doing stuff before they support you, right? And that is like a fact. People don't want to support you unless other people are supporting you, unless other people have like deemed you as valuable and worthy. So on the flip side, Money has to be made, right? In order for me to push my yes. push the content that I push, somebody has to be paying me. So thirdly, um, a lot of companies, even if they do kind of sort of align with your message, they're always doing something shady, right? Just like just like human beings. I might have really great qualities. I might have some F the ones too, okay? So like it's the same thing with companies, but you have to look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture for me is to push my agenda. So I'm already at a disadvantage because I talk about what I talk about and I dress the way I dress. So a lot of companies won't even work with me, right? So the ones that do reach out and is like, hey, here's some clothes, take a picture of them, we'll repost them or whatever the case may be, or we'll pay you for this or pay you for that then I am at a disadvantage. It's either you do the work or, and, you know, try to, like, make it to where it's like, okay, I'm finding the goodness in this and actually pushing my own agenda, or you're just going to be like, okay, I'm not getting any work done and no one's seeing what I do, right? So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Now, do I, do I work with every company? No. Have I turned down some? Sure. Um, has that caused me to not have a lot of money? Yes. So that's something as an influencer, you have to take into account. Like if I'm working with these people, 
how am I going to twist it to kind of like, you know, make it where it's like we're both benefiting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and are they super shady where I just cannot even partner up with them? Yeah, I was like laughing recently because you posted about when Lululemon asked you to come. And I was like, my butt could not or these thighs cannot fit in Lululemon. And like, you just wrote that whole blog post about it where you like went, but you're like, let me keep it 100 about what happened here. So I just, I love that. Hopefully they're not mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll just do better. You know? I mean, yeah, because I was just shocked. And one of my followers actually pointed that out. She's like, that's shocking because they don't even like cater to your size. I said, girl, <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> Maybe they're trying. Maybe they're trying. What's next for you? What are some goals that you have for yourself or, or things that you're you're working on that you want our listeners to know about? So I have an agent for my memoir. So I'd love to get my memoir published. Inshallah, like, I, you know, if I get a book deal, that'll be amazing. And I, I would push that, like, legitimately. I think people will really enjoy that. And I'll probably get a lot of hate for it, too. But oh, well. It's I'm getting paid. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't announced it yet. But I want to work on a music video. Are you, you rapping? You singing? You, I was. I do not sing or rap, but I'm going to start. I'm going to try. Uh, <laughs> so this could be really, really bad or really, really good. So like, stay tuned for that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So basically, my plans are to make more racist people mad, more Islamophobes angry. Um, <laughs> going to be anybody, make them mad. Troll the trolls. Exactly. More photo shoots, more videos, traveling, eating good food. Um, being super fabulous on 1000. <laughs> I co-sign all of those things. <laughs> Heavily support. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I could see the music star in you. <laughs> You're, I mean, I knew this was coming. This had to be the next step. I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom. No. No. Okay. So it's, it's basically about like all of these backup singers um, and how they were literally like 20 feet away from stardom. <laughs> so this is like our random fun question. If you could be a backup singer or dancer for any artist, who would it be? Hmm. I'm going to say I'd probably be a backup dancer for Rihanna. Yes. Because um, <laughs> um, I'm obsessed with her. I feel like she can wear anything and she's so confident that it doesn't really matter what she wears. It's iconic. Oh my god! So it's like she can wear like this. Like I have a cheeses box right here. She can make like that into something. I'd be like, oh my god, Rihanna, yes, queen, yes. I'm going to buy some cheeses immediately. <laughs> exactly. It's like anything she wears is iconic. I'm just like, how? I want to do it. I want to live that life. She's amazing. For the record, um, from what I've seen, everything you wear is iconic as well. So. Keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. We always ask our guests if there's anything else that you want to share with our listeners. You shared a bunch about what you're what you're working on, what you have coming up. You guys can follow me if you like my respectful messiness. You can follow me at lvernon2000 or you can catch me on my blog where you'll see a ton of amazing photos at www.beautyinthemuse.net. Yes, thank you for sharing that. Um, we will put links to those in our episode description. So 
So this was a little bit of an atypical week for us. Uh, something happened. Do you remember no, what I happened this week at class? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really hard. So you know, much. There's been so much going on. Um, yeah, just kidding. We were on NPR. And it was really cool to hear from you all as you were hearing the segment. So in case you missed it, Layla Fuddle, who is a reporter for NPR, she's doing this collaboration with them and Nat Geo and doing a feature on the next generation of American Muslims. And she decided to feature your girls as a part of that series to kick it off. Um, and we'll put the link to our uh, interview with her in the episode description. It was pretty surreal to all of the People that have uh, invested in the show, discovered the show, please subscribe, please review, and always pitch us your ideas. And if you are searching for the podcast in, pod- in your podcast app, remember that we're everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And so you just want to type in identity politics and you'll see us come up and you can subscribe from there. Identity Politics is a podcast created by me, Ikhlas Salim. This episode was produced by Ikhlas Salim and Mecca Ali. And music is by Ibrahim Azam. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>